You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. Let's open our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, there was a game that I played when I was a little kid called Telephone. Did anyone ever play that game? Maybe you recall this. The teacher would start on, I guess, one side of the classroom, and she would whisper a phrase. And I can't remember any of the phrases because I was always, like, typically two-thirds to the end of the line, and I would be the one hearing the phrase. And it would have nothing to do at all uh, with what the phrase was originally intended to be. And I would find out because I would typically be the person that shares and the whole class would laugh. And what did you learn from that lesson? The more people that were involved in a line of communication, the more chances there are that something would be diluted or misconstrued. So what's really interesting is that a few weeks ago, I told Aaron after talking with somebody after church they were visiting here, I said to to Aaron, I said, I often feel like a used car salesman uh, as a pastor, as as a preacher. I feel like a used car salesman. And that is, if you're a used car salesman, that's great for you. Uh, it's pretty bad when you're, when you're trying to pastor a church feeling like that, though, because I feel like what culture has caused us to do is that it's my job to try to convince you to buy something. And, and what I love is this, that the gospel is not something that I need you to buy in because this is true whether you ascribe to it or believe it or not. Uh, my job's not to try to, to try to sell you something today and say, you know what, I really need you to, to accept this because if you accept this message, it's going to make your life a little prettier, a little better, a little more comfortable. It comes with air conditioning. That, that's not my job. So it's kind of a strange feeling sometimes of being because I, 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 I battle these two thoughts. One is this game of telephone because Christianity has taken on such a strange shape, at least from what I can see in, in the New Testament. It really is. Now, I'm not going to claim um, that I've got the perfect recipe at all. I don't. But, but at the same time, I'm not going to make excuses and sit there and go, eh, it is what it is. I feel like I'm on this journey. Proverbs 18:17 says this, that the first to hear of a court case appears right until somebody else testifies. Have you ever um, had somebody say something that wasn't true of you to somebody else, and it didn't matter what you did didn't matter how hard you tried to get them to believe the truth. They already took it hook, line, and sinker. And when you went back and tried to go, that's not true. They look at you and go, no, it is. And you haven't even heard my, I'm involved in this. That guy wasn't even there. That girl wasn't even there. Everyone's never had any life experience here. All right. Yeah. We've experienced this thing. And you feel that. And now, what about on the, the flip side of it? Have you ever had somebody come to you and told you something, and you were so fired up and so angry, and maybe you shot off that email, which is a terrible idea, or that Facebook message, or MySpace, or Twitter, or Instagram. I don't know if you can message on that. Or Blogger, or Pinterest, or Zanga, or any of those other past, or AIM. Maybe you still use AIM, right? Maybe, maybe you, went, you went back and you fired that thing off and then you realized, oh my goodness, th- this isn't right. But, but we took it hook, line, and sinker. Now what's interesting is that all of us here, regardless of age, gender, regardless of whatever it is, all of us have heard some sort of explanation or some sort of depiction of what the gospel is, of what Christianity is. And it's our job then to take the scripture and begin to cross-examine what we've heard with what is what we can actually trace back to truth. Because how many of us know that in, if, we, if a simple game of telephone can be messed up within like four kids, over 2,000 years of Christian history, 
a, a, a lot can get awry. Now, let me say it to you like this. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. There's a recently in the Christian Post, they just put out an article, the presiding bishop, um, Catherine Jeffords Scorai of the Episcopal, Episcopalian Church. This is actually incredibly concerning. In a sermon delivered before the Diocese of Venezuela on the island, she pres- the presiding bishop said this, that when Paul the Apostle drove out the demon of the slave girl in the book of Acts, she was depriving her of a gift of spiritual awareness. All right, everybody, Ben heard that. This is crazy. This is the, the, the leader of the Episcopalian Church just came out and said that, that when Paul the Apostle casted out a demon, he was doing that young girl a disservice because he was robbing her of spiritual awareness. Now, that's not something that I heard somebody tell me. That is what she said. Now, what's crazy about that is that that's crazy. Somebody has a demon and they're set free. We don't go, oh, that poor little kid. You've never seen what a demon does. So now, although that's an extreme case, I think, of telephone, (laughs) just a little bit, I would suggest this, that Christian media, what's portrayed on both positive and negative, misses the point. So both both Westboro Baptist is off their rocker, and and Christian media at large is off their rocker. Both of them. That's not the answer. So this long-standing game of telephone, if we track it, we look at it, and again, our job is to cross-examine. But what's happened with this is that we've kind of been passed down this um, Christian bubble, and in embracing it, we've reduced it to this. Um, When your car breaks down, you have a mechanic. I got my mechanic. Now, my mechanic... It's John Scritchfield's mechanic. He said, Jared, you got to go with this guy. Now he's my mechanic. How many people have that? When something breaks down, that's my guy. When you want to buy a car, that's my car salesman. When you go to a restaurant, that's my restaurant. When you go to church, that's my church. And our life has become so compartmentalized that what's interesting about it is that if we're not careful, Christianity, rather than being something that shapes our life, becomes something that we do on a weekend. Rather than the gospel being the preeminent, shifting factor of our life, that everything is centered around that, it just becomes, well, where do you go to church? Oh, that's my pastor. I don't really like him that much. Oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. It's my mechanic. And we get into this entitlement thing rather than understanding that church is on a totally different plane than who our mechanic is, what our favorite restaurant is, what our favorite, you know, who our car salesman, all of that. That has nothing to do with it because the gospel is supposed to shape our lives. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We've been talking about covenant just last week and this week. And thinking through as much as we can in our limited ability, we want to look at what does God say about himself? Not what do other people say about God, but who do, what does God say about himself? What does the scripture show us about God? You know, when you pull people on the streets or when you just ask somebody, what, you know, what is your view of God? You get everything from a man in the cloud with fists and boots, somebody that's angry. You get somebody who's like the hippie guy that just embraces. You get all of these different opinions. It's a big deal that we understand who God is, though. So in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to read, if you can pull that up for me, starting uh, in verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. 
But God said, you, now, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was a desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also took with some of it her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and hid themselves in loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord of the God, the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard your, the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave... It cracks me up, I'm sorry. (laughs) The first blame shifting ever. God says, have you eaten it? The woman you gave me. That is like from the inception of the earth. From the moment God just created this thing. Did you eat of this thing? She did it. All right, And uh, on Father's Day... Everyone says, Amen, all right? <laughs> I just think that's so funny. She gave it to me. And then the Lord God said to the woman, Who is it? That, what have you done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. This is really interesting. We look back at the original story in God's good created world. God created this earth. Now, what's interesting about it, there's a couple things just by common sense. And you know, Genesis leaves us with a lot more questions than answers. If you really give Genesis an honest reading, it doesn't, you shouldn't really walk away with this overstout confidence of, I know exactly what happened. It actually leaves you with one of these questions going, how did this thing happen and what really was going on there? Like, for instance, let me suggest this. How would they know the knowledge of good and evil? They already had to have some sort of understanding of good and evil if God told them that that was bad to do. Because how could they be held accountable for something if they violated that, if they didn't already have some sort of awareness? Number two, evil had to be already in the world because the serpent was there. Evil was there. Evil was present. So there already is some kind of strange things going on because if it was just total ignorance, you can't punish somebody for something that they're not aware of. So they already had some sort of understanding of what was going on. So why did God call them into such strong account? Let me suggest this. The scripture says this, that the day that you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good of evil, and then Satan goes and says this, that if you eat of this, you'll know the difference, not only know, but you'll be like God. It's interesting. So what was the sin? Was the sin desiring to know good and evil? No, the sin was this, that they said, in that moment, I'll become independent of who God is. I'll become my own judge. I'll learn to interact I'll learn to interact and define this world. I'll say, this is what God says. I'll be the judge. I'll figure out how this world is supposed to work. It's interesting that Satan, the first thing he says to them is, did God really say? He attacks two things, objective truth and the character of God. Did God really say? Right there he says, can you really trust God's word? Can can you really trust God's word? And number two, can you really trust his character? I mean, how do you know that somebody's not really just holding something back from you that's really good? What if God's holding something back from you? You know how? If you become the judge, then you'll figure out what this whole thing's about. And the moment that they did that, 
They ate of it, and what had happened? They recognized they were naked. God comes to them and says, who told you they were naked? And what's interesting about this is that this is at the very root of what's uh, really the core of what's wrong in society. Now, here, here it is. The wisdom from a 24-year-old man that is now discerning the problems of the world, all right? Put your seatbelt on. I'm going to discern everything and fix it in one moment. Ready? We're not God. That's it. Because when we become the judge, when we become the person who discerns right and wrong, Jonathan Edwards would remind us that this, that to idolize something, by default we demonize something else. So when we idolize race, our race, we demonize the next race. If we idolize our gender, then by default we demonize the next gender. If we idolize our nation, we demonize another nation. If we idolize a political party, we demonize other political parties. If we idolize our socioeconomic economic class, our money, our welfare, then we demonize somebody else, which is really interesting. If we idolize our family, then we demonize another family. When we become the judge, rather than God defining this, we begin to idolize our theological system and demonize other theological systems. We idolize our church or our denomination and demonize others. And I would even stretch it to this, and I need you to track with me so you hear what I'm saying. I would say this, that when we idolize our religion, we demonize other religions. When we idolize our religion, we demonize other religions. You know, it's really interesting and absolutely heartbreaking, I actually think, in the posture that Christians have taken towards, towards Muslims. Maybe you've seen the show, uh, What Would You Do on ABC? Anyone see that? It's one of these things where they do like the hidden camera or whatever. Recently they had one where uh, a man you know, from really Arab descent that was um, you know, claimed to be a Muslim in this, and they set this up where he's behind the counter and he was serving sandwiches, and they had this guy come up and just basically say really terribly racist things towards him, incredibly racist things towards him. And most of the people stopped this guy right on the bat and was like, dude, you got to back down, man. Like, this is America. Like, the, the, he, he can be who he needs to be. Just let go. And he's like, I don't want him serving my sandwich. That guy's a terrorist. I don't want that. I, and just kept dogging on him over and over and over. And you know what? It was wild. Everyone stopped him except one guy was going, yeah, I think you're right, man. I don't want him here either. You can't tell the difference. And just going on and on and on and on. Now, listen, I, I don't want you to get uncomfortable in the, th- in the sense that I'm saying the Christian, Christianity and, and uh, Islam are the same thing. They're not. They're very different. And I believe Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. However, the posture that you take in the way that you interact reveals far more about how you've been saved in provoking humility than it does in the pride of what you have. Jesus should absolutely be the most humbling thing to us in regards to the way that we interact with every religion and every race. Because if I'm the judge, he should, it should humble me to the point where I don't look at somebody through a different lens regardless of religion or belief. I can believe that I have absolute truth, but yet I can learn how to interact with humility. That would really be a great time for an amen if we believe that. If you don't, then maybe we'll talk about it again another week. Because Christianity leaves no room for racism. It leaves no room. It, it, it leaves no room to do that. If we follow through the gospel, it doesn't allow us to do that. The gospel should so melt our hearts because we recognize when we're created in the image of God that God is our creator. 
And in doing so, I don't get to judge between if I idolize my race, by default I demonize another. If I idolize something so that this is really at the core of it, you can take this anywhere. So what do we see about the nature of God? Again, we see that God says, did you say not to eat? He goes, of course. They did two things. This is what I want you to see. First, they covered themselves. The moment we get outside of our affirmation and identity in God, we have to cover ourselves with something. Cover ourselves whatever material thing you can get. I go through the, we can go through the list all day, but I think we know the money, sex, power, relationship, even religion, whatever it is, we cover ourselves with something to feel like we find our security in it. And how do we know that that's our security? If it was taken from us in a moment, and I'm not talking about you need to be scared, but how do we know what an idol is? It's something that means more to us and our identity than anything else in our life. And if that single thing was taken away, we would be crumbled. We wouldn't just be hurt, we'd be devastated. Now, I'm not talking about spouse and the relationship you have there. There's, I'm not talking about that if something was taken away, you wouldn't grieve. I'm talking about devastated. When something goes wrong, you feel your whole life crumble. When your finances go, when your relationship goes, whatever it is, it falls apart, it crumbles. They hid themselves. They sowed for themselves out of fig trees. A fig tree is something that God created that they then said, that's what God created that fig tree for shade, but instead I'm going to make that my covering. I'm going to take something that's good that God created for this world and instead I'm going to take it for my sake. So what God created money to bless this world or God created relationships to bless this world, to be shade, something to be enjoyable for us, I'm going to sew together and rearrange it so that it fits me. So they covered themselves and then they hid themselves. And you know what I love about this, though, is that God does what? He pursues them. He comes to them right away. And I love what he says. The first thing, when they sinned against God, here's the very nature of the character of God. They've violated, they've sinned against. So the first thing he goes is, where are you? Well, we're hiding. Why? Because we're naked. Well, that, that does give you a reason to hide, first of all. And I would encourage you to come clothed to Sunday morning service. This is not a proof text for uh, nudist colonies this morning either, in case you're wondering. But it's in the Bible. That's not, that's not what we're talking but we, but we see this. They're hiding. God goes, where are you? He pursues them. He follows after them. The nature and character of God is this, that when you fall, he comes to you. The character of God, the first thing God says to them is that he makes them a promise. The moment they violate, the moment they break down, the moment it goes wrong, right away he comes and says, I'm going to do something. And we see in just one, a couple verses later, it says this in verse 20. That God made garments and sewed together skins to clothe them. God goes, even when you screwed this thing up, I'm going to offer redemption for you. I'm going to give you an opportunity. I'm going to clothe you. I was talking with Aaron um, this past week. We were just um, praying, and I was thinking through something, you know, about the love of God. When I understand the character of God. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and gave, him son, gave himself his son as propitiation for our sins, meaning propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God. This is love, not that we loved. Now imagine um, you were coming over for a barbecue at our house. I didn't say there is one today, so don't show up. But imagine if you were. And I would say to you, this is the way to go. You're going to pull out of the church here and take a left on Main. You're going to go all the way up until you... I better not give out our address, honey. I'm kidding. 
and I say, take a right at a certain light, not, at, not a left. If I say, take a right, not a left. But if that person, I don't care how much I love you, how much we're friends, I don't care if we're talking on the phone while you're driving. If you take that left, you didn't take the right. This is love. Not the left, but the right. This is it. This is the gospel. This is what God has accomplished for us. That Christ loves us, period. Now, in this moment, when we start to think through the love of God, the first question we say, well, aren't we supposed to love God back? You know what? That's the right question at the wrong time. C.S. Lewis would would phrase it like this. uh, That's like asking, is yellow round or square? How how uh, How many miles are in an hour? That's apples and oranges. The two don't apply because what Christianity is not about us loving God back. It is, this is love. Not the left, but the right. So that if I have to then earn my approval, acceptance, or anything from God based on my own effort, my own works, my own security, my own clothing, then I've missed the gospel. I've totally missed it. Because two responses happen. The moment I try to cover myself and I hide. Everyone in this room, um, basically there's only two paths and we contrast them all the time. There's religion, irreligion, and then down the center is the gospel. Religion can take on two different types. It can take on this face of achieving where that if I can achieve enough then I'm going to be accepted and approved by God. If I can just achieve a little bit more. Or it's negotiating. If I could just read a couple more chapters of the Bible. If I could just just sing a little bit louder. If I could lift my hands a little bit higher. Some of us are wearing high heels because we want to worship a little higher this morning, right? If I could just get a little bit more. If I can achieve. If I can negotiate. Irreligion just says, I'm going to completely ignore this whole God thing. I don't really need it. But you know what's amazing? Is that Christianity splits down the center. It doesn't let us earn his approval. It doesn't let us negotiate his approval. Why? Because to negotiate, to barter, begs that you have something he wants and more importantly needs. When you're yard sailing this summer and you see that cheap thing that you know you shouldn't buy and that has $5 on it and they go, well, would you like that for $5? And that's way too much. And you get them down to 75 cents and you feel like you've robbed them and bought it off them. It's the only, yard selling is the only thing where you can steal and give somebody money, something while you're stealing it from them. That's why people love it. Criminals. All right. <laughs> you criminals. My grandma is 83 years old, just driving around looking. I got this for a bargain, grandma. You, you just robbed that woman's retirement there. Do you realize that? Do you want it? No, nah, let's throw it away. All right. I'm kidding. She doesn't, she's not that wasteful. She's not wasteful. We negotiate. To negotiate with God says that we need something. That he needs something from us. But I think this is amazing when we look at the nature, the character of God. Is the moment they fall, the moment they sin, the moment they rebel against God. God doesn't come to them and say, you know what I need from you? You know what I need from you? He doesn't ask that question. He simply says this. Where are you? And then number two, who told you you were naked? We live our lives constantly covering ourselves over and over and over. How can I make up for what, uh, what I lack? 
Jesus doesn't interact with us on the basis of our works, good or bad. He doesn't interact with us on the basis of how good our week was or how bad our week was. He doesn't interact with us on the basis of our bank account or lack of bank account. He doesn't interact with us on any of those bases. He interacts on the basis of covenant. What is that covenant? Luke chapter 22, verse 20. It was the night which Jesus was betrayed. He took the cup, and after eating, he said, this is the cup poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood. You only have two ways to serve God, really. Religion and irreligion, I'm going to cap them under this. Either his blood or your blood. One of the two. It's either you serve God out of your own blood, you say, I can do this, I can negotiate, I can achieve, I can be enough, or it's out of his blood, out of his finished work. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. Motivation from religion is fear and insecurity. The gospel is grateful joy. Religion says, I obey to get things from God. (laughs) Gospel says, I obey to get God so I can delight in God. When circumstances go wrong, I have anger and struggle. When circumstances go wrong, I might have anger and struggle, but I trust that God's in control. Religion is a prayer life that's based out of petition. Gospel motivates us to a prayer life out of the presence of God. When we look at, really, all of us interact with them. And what concerns me is that you might be selling yourself short this morning of knowing how good he is. You might have grown up in a background that says, this is who God is. If you don't do it exactly like this, then whatever. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11 says this, the glory of the blessed God. The word blessed in the Greek there means happy. Glory of the blessed God. If God is happy about this story, if we're not, the disconnection's not on his part, it's on our part. We've got, uh, we've got an epidemic in our culture of boredom, constant boredom. When it comes to knowing God, you know, if you turn on a movie, it's about every sec- seven seconds, the channel or the, the, the view will change, the angle will change if you watch a movie. I don't suggest you do that start to notice it, you will get sick to your stomach, especially if it's a 3D movie. All right? Just letting you know. No, but, it, but we live in a culture which is constantly changing. You know that when you're putting together a marketing video, that if it's more than a minute and 20 seconds, people will stop watching it. That when you have a hook video, if it's more than a minute and 20 seconds, and next time that you're on YouTube, test yourself. That if that thing's more than like a minute and 20 seconds, watch. You'll be watching that thing. And if it's like four or five minutes long, you'll watch the beginning of it. And if it's not incredibly, exceptionally intriguing, it's changing angles, our attention span will just rocket right off and go to the next thing. We're in a, a pandemic of boredom, though, when it comes to God. We want him to be a quick YouTube. I want to click on and be like, God met me at church for a minute and 30 seconds. And then as he's meeting me, I'm tweeting. I'm like linking all my social networks so everyone knows I just had an experience with God all at one time. 
We can't expect to get from God in a minute and 30 seconds who he is. Because that's not what he... That he is to shape our lives. He's to be the vision of our lives, not just to be one last thing. In closing, all of us interact with God on some basis. Your blood or his blood. Uh, you might be the person that's truly rebellious and you that I can prove this thing. I can run, you know, I, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. Or I'll clean myself up. You know, what cracks me up is people say you know, something along the lines of like, if God, you know, I'm just, God's out to get me. Do you realize how senile that actually is to say God's out to get you? You can't dodge bird droppings on your car after you get it washed for about an hour. And, and, and yet we expect to dodge God as if we can live our life. No, listen, the reason he hasn't taken you out is because he doesn't want to take you out. He loves you. You can't dodge him because he's not out to get you. We serve him either by his blood or our blood. All of us have a covering. We sang a song a few weeks ago, My One Defense, My Righteousness, Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. In, in a moment like this, as we close, the concerning part is that um, not only do we have a fascination with boredom, but we also have a fascination with just agreeing with something from a distance without ever internalizing it. You know, when you're in school, um, particularly at least our education system, as far as I understand, much of it is passive learning teacher lectures, very much like us, and then you're quizzed on can you recite so-and-so. Now, if you get into different fields of thinking, uh, for instance, Cody in the medical field, um, you need to be able to do a little bit more than just recite the answers because if Cody's doing open-heart surgery on me in the future, hopefully that's not going to happen. I hope Cody didn't just say, I know what we got to do here. We just got to cut it open and that's a heart. I know what that is. And that's a, this is a scalpel. And if I put this here and I do that, when it comes to matters of Jesus Christ and matters of religion, the scary thought is that we can actually come to church and just agree or disagree. If you disagree, that's, that's one thing. But if you disagree, then that's, that's fine. That's actually not necessarily the harder thing. To me, the more concerning part is to agree with something without ever embodying it to agree with things, but yet to live in total uh, disarray. Let me break it down like this. We claim that God is all sovereign, God is all good, but yet we live in fear. But yet we claim the gospel. We're insecure in our identity and our person constantly. Everywhere we go, we're checking to make sure people feel good about us and, and to make sure that we're okay. But yet we've got a God who's called us perfect in Christ. We go to bed at night and we can't sleep because we're constantly anxious and nervous and so worrying about what's going to happen next. But yet we have a God who says he gives us peace that passes all understanding. Now what's the recipe for that? How do, what's the solution? You, you know, the scary thing is that you can actually try to force feed your way and it'll make it worse. That if you stand there and 
God's not giving me a spirit of fear, but power, love, and sound mind. I recommend not doing that on a street corner. That would be odd. But if you're afraid, God's not giving me a spirit of fear. God's not giving me a spirit of fear. You can quote scripture out the wazoo, wherever that orifice is. You can quote that out the wazoo, and at the end of the day, still live in fear. You can memorize the Bible and be absolutely in fear. You could be memorize the Bible and absolutely be insecure, and yet you can agree with it. How? Isn't that wild? This is why Jesus says this. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. If I say bicycle, what pops into your mind? Bicycle, I would hope, all right? Unless you've got other things on your pressing. We'll pray for you later. If I say um, black jacket, what pops into your mind? Black jacket. If I say spirit and life, what pops into your mind? You can't. I mean, you might think of, you might have a picture of a bird floating or something like that, but that's a bird floating. That's not, that's not spirit or life. That's a bird floating. Spirit and life are both abstract. We live in a world of concrete things. So if I say spirit and life, what is it? What do I think about it? But yet Jesus doesn't say the words that I speak to you are concrete. He says the words that I speak to you are spirit and life, meaning this, that this written word is to lead us to the living word. I can read this until I'm blue in the face, but if I never meet with Jesus, then all this is is information. And actually, according to the scripture, the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. As we close this morning, I want us to search our hearts just for a moment and ask God, Lord, what part of my life am I covering myself? It's really interesting. When something goes wrong, do I feel like I have to overcompensate? When I do something wrong, have you ever, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you apologize a hundred times. Maybe your favorite thing to do is apologize, and somebody keeps telling you, why do you, you don't have to say sorry. You know what that is? That's an insecurity right there. Now, I'm not talking about if you, you know, you punch somebody in the face, you probably say sorry. I'm saying that, oh, if you continually find yourself saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and if everybody around you keeps saying, oh, don't worry about it, don't worry about it, you don't have to apologize, you don't have to apologize, sooner or later you should realize, you know what? For some reason, I'm covering myself here. There's something about me that I'm afraid to be at unrest with people. I'm afraid for something. All of us have these things that we cover ourselves and we hide ourselves from God. And today, I want to encourage you, Jesus Christ is the light. Let's open our hearts to him. Let's pray. Father, you made a covenant with us. Actually, first you made a covenant with yourself that you were going to love this world unconditionally, regardless if they would accept you or not. So Lord, now in this space and time, we recognize that we have an opportunity to choose you. We can accept you or reject you. We can accept your forgiveness and your finished work on that cross. Or we can say that our blood is stronger than yours. Our obedience to religion is stronger than yours. We can say our giving or our offering or our prayer life or our devotions or our giving to the poor is stronger than than you, Lord. And all those things are good. They're good things. But Lord, we don't want to cover ourselves this morning. Lord, we come to you um, naked. We come to you needing you, dependent upon you. So, Father, I pray this morning for each individual that's in this church that finds themselves covering little aspects. That when when they are put in a a position where they feel that they need to lie rather than telling the truth, they'd rather cover themselves. 
Lord, I pray in that moment that we would recognize that we are naked before you and that, God, we can trust you enough to raise us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.